Earlier this year, the editors behind one of the most respected voices on press criticism, the Columbia Journalism Review, and one of the oldest publications in the US, The Nation, set out a challenge for publications across the globe. Report more on climate change. Editors Kyle Pope and Mark Hertzgart deemed the media's minimization of the climate crisis as one of the great journalistic failures of our time. They asked newsrooms around the world to commit to climate coverage all week leading up to the United Nations Climate Action Summit in September. They had an overwhelming response. More than 350 news outlets around the world signed up to Covering Climate Now initiative, with a combined audience of over 1 billion people. But after talking to reporters from the likes of The Guardian, Bloomberg, Rolling Stone and Al Jazeera, they realised this was just the beginning. On today's episode, how one powerhouse of journalism turned an industry upside down and demanded better coverage of the climate crisis. And to what extent a new wave of young climate activists can affect change. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Kyle and Mark were inspired to launch Covering Climate Now because they realised that media in the US for too long portrayed a false balance between the views of genuine scientists and those of climate deniers, that climate change had been reported as a political story instead of a science story. We know that based on um, Wendy Bacon's analysis of the coverage of climate change um, in a range of Australian newspapers, that um, there was undue uh, space being given to the views of science deniers. And let's be clear, they're not climate deniers, they are science deniers. Tom Morton is an award-winning journalist with over two decades of experience. He's the director of the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism, and he's also an associate professor of journalism and researcher at the Climate Justice Research Centre at UTS. And he's talking about Professor Wendy Bacon, who conducted detailed analysis of Australian newspapers' coverage of climate back in 2013. She found that um, uh, there was uh, a really excessive amount of space being given to not just the um, views of science deniers, but also to uh, particular commentators like Andrew Bolt, um, uh, who were helping to boost um, science denial um, uh, in the in the media, and this reflects, in a way, a broader trend that we saw in international media. A couple of American scholars called Boykoff and Boykoff identified a similar trend in the American media, and they described this as what they called balance as bias, where this sort of false idea of uh, balancing the views of um, the 95% of the world's scientists who uh, uh, know that climate change um, is happening and that it's caused by humans uh, with the 5% of those scientists um, or uh, experts, supposed experts, who don't think that it's happening. And Boykoff and Boykoff said that was false balance and, in fact, it was bias because it was giving undue emphasis to the views of science deniers. But that was then. Tom reckons we've improved since. I think we've moved on from there now. We see much less evidence of that. Science denial is still there, but I think that the Australian media has got much better about accurately and truthfully representing the scientific consensus on climate change. But we're not quite there yet. 
As we migrate away from this false balance and break away from the idea of climate change as a debate, we're really only at the beginning of climate reporting. As the editors behind Covering Climate now discovered, some pretty substantial roadblocks remain, such as the activist concern. In talking to newsrooms across the country, Kyle and Mark encountered many journalists who said they were hesitant to report on climate as they were afraid to be seen as too activist. This fear of advocacy journalism is so prevalent that some of the most high-profile publications in the world, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, still haven't signed up to climate coverage now. The legacy organisations claimed they didn't want to be seen as joining something, to be seen as activist. It doesn't mean that we have to become advocates because ultimately journalists' responsibility is to try and pursue the best available version of the truth that they can. Um, and I still think that's the most important thing that journalists can continue to do um, in this era of climate emergency, is simply to focus on the stories that need telling and the stories that aren't being told at the moment. His view is shared by Kyle and Mark, who say that the concern around advocacy journalism distorts what news gathering is all about. That journalism has always been about righting wrongs, holding the powerful to account. They say it's in our best traditions to shine a light on our most vexing problems in order to help fix them. Journalists need uh, to focus on what the real story is. One of the big stories, of course, is the entrenched um, power and influence of the fossil fuel sector. And we've seen a very real example in the United States where um, journalists investigated what ExxonMobil knew about climate change uh, this is you know, one of the largest fossil fuel corporations in the world uh, and a group of journalists um, commissioned by the Rockefeller Foundation started to investigate what ExxonMobil had known about the link between burning fossil fuels and climate change and they found that ExxonMobil knew uh, in the late 70s that there was a link between fossil fuels and climate change and those disclosures are now the subject of a number of lawsuits in the United States involving the Attorneys General of a number of states where uh, a massive amount of material has been disclosed showing what ExxonMobil knew, uh, knew and showing how ExxonMobil then went on to actively un try to undermine climate science in the, from the 1980s onwards. That's an example of the kind of journalism that we need which first of all exposes the power and the influence uh, of the fossil fuel sector, its attempts to try and undermine climate science. Tom thinks journalists missed a chance to hold some of those powerful to account in the recent Australian election. We have had some excellent journalism about, for example, um, uh, uh, Adani, um, the Indian company which wants to open up one of the world's largest ever coal mines in North Queensland. We've had some excellent journalism about Adani Corporation's um, financial dealings in India uh, and about its very close links to the political establishment in India. What we didn't get in the last election was reporters prepared to pursue the real story in Queensland. The problem with journalism in the last election or with journalists in the last election is that they were all far too focused on what was going on in Canberra. Uh, journalists did not challenge Adani's figures about the number of jobs that they said would be generated by that mine. Claims not just by the coalition but by politicians um, in Queensland and by key unions in Queensland 
um, that jobs were going to be destroyed unless the Adani mine went ahead was simply not true. Um, the vast majority of jobs, as I said, in Queensland are in metallurgical coal, and they didn't really go out and talk to people in those communities uh, about what the real issues were. And for that reason, I say it's not that we need more advocacy journalism, we need more good journalism. Another concern cited by journalists was that audiences simply don't care anymore, that climate reporting is too depressing, that its alarmist and urgent messaging is numbing, causing apathy, that audiences are simply turning away. Most people know that climate change is happening. Most people know that there's a scientific basis for our contribution to climate change. Uh, And most people, the polls repeatedly show in Australia that most people want something done about it. But it's always experienced as this kind of background noise. There used to be this view that if we could only communicate the climate science better, if we could only uh, more accurately describe Um, the link between uh, humans burning fossil fuels and the heating of the planet, that suddenly everybody would wake up and do something. Now, I think that's proved um, to be wrong, and I think there's also now a lot of research which suggests that that's the wrong approach. Tom says climate change is, after all, the biggest story of the 21st century, and that it's up to the journalist to make it engaging. And that doesn't mean veering away from alarmist messaging. So it is important that we use, we use accurate language and we are heating the planet and we are in a climate emergency. There's a very interesting approach um, that a couple of uh, scholars, um, Smith and Howe, um, have taken um, in talking about climate change. They talk about it as a social drama. I think understanding that the story of climate change is experienced by people in different ways, in different genres, as a kind of a drama and understanding how, um, as journalists, as communicators and so on, we can intervene in that drama and frame that drama is important. It also means sharing good news stories as well. So it's important for us to tell the good news story about um, the remarkable growth of renewable energy, not just in Australia, but in countries like India and China as well. And we need more journalism, which really, for example, looks at what is happening in Australia, the fact that we have a renewable energy revolution happening in Australia, that renewables are not linked to blackouts, uh, that the notion of baseload power in Australia um, is one that um, is now completely outmoded. So that's the kind of journalism we need. But there's only so much journalists can do. The rest is up to the politicians. Political issues, regardless of whether it's climate change or not, will not be adequately discussed in the media and in what we broadly call the public sphere um, if there aren't um, uh, influential and authoritative, what we call in the media studies world, primary definers who are making those things an issue. Uh, In other words, in particular, politicians. And one of the problems that we've had with the debate about climate change in Australia, and it was really apparent in the last election, was that the Labor Party, the opposition, could not take a clear position on Australia's coal exports. And it was not surprising that voters themselves then said, well, if the Labor Party doesn't know what it thinks about 
climate change. If the Labor Party can't take a clear position on coal, then how do we believe their climate policy? Tom says once journalists engage their audiences, they must encourage them to put pressure on governments. What we're often told, which is that we just need to change our behaviour as individuals, um, you know, we need to start driving our cars less or we need to um, eat less meat, etc., etc. All of those things are true, yeah? But uh, what is really important is that we put pressure on our governments, we put pressure on institutions to take these simple and effective steps that will make a difference to the climate emergency. Climate change is a political issue. It is not about individual behaviour. It is a political issue, and we need to get those messages out there by giving our audiences a sense that, that it is possible for governments, nations uh, and global institutions and people to take some action that will be effective in trying to prevent the climate emergency that we are now in, that's really important. So, what does that look like? Tuba Faruqi, but I guess all my mates call me Tubes. Tuba is a climate activist whose current Facebook profile picture boasts an impressive 300 likes, featuring her standing on top of a bus stop with a megaphone at the most recent strike for climate. She was shocked at the turnout. To be frank, I was like, oh, like 50,000, like I'll take that. Like, that's amazing. I've always wanted to know what it would be like to attend a protest that big. When you rock up and you just, you lose all your friends and your phone reception is out because there is that many people there. That's just absolutely, it was honestly so heartening. Tuba was part of a movement which saw hundreds of thousands rally across the country for climate action in September, plus thousands more across the globe. The climate strikes were led by children, following in the footsteps of climate activist Greta Thunberg. The mobilisation of people, especially children, can be powerful. But is it enough? According to Nathaniel Geiger, maybe, with just enough coverage. I am an assistant professor of communication science in the media school here at Indiana University. Nate was brought onto a team at Indiana to examine how activism can motivate others to take action. The researchers examined public opinion data before and after two huge climate protests in the US back in 2017, the March for Science and the People's Climate March. 
and the 600 people surveyed represented all age groups, education levels, and political beliefs. Uh, so certainly media plays a huge part in changing, changing people's perspectives. Um, and people are you know, increasingly being exposed to different information. We had anticipated potentially that the conservative-leaning media might not have covered the marches as favorably and that it might not have had as positive of an impact on, on people consuming that media. But what our data says essentially exactly the opposite. We were surprised to see that after the marches that that difference had largely gone away, that the people consuming the conservative media became more optimistic. And actually, after the marches, the people consuming the conservative media were actually about as optimistic as people consuming liberal media and suggests the potential that these marches are actually able to break through echo chambers within different sorts of media. The team also assessed public perception of the marches themselves. We did this, we looked at this specifically because other research showed that um, the way that we view climate advocates actually influences, potentially influences our willingness to um, engage with the issue, either to you know, go out and support climate action or potentially, um, you know, to get, if we're angry enough, we might go out and actually oppose action on climate change. And what we found was, was after the marches that people actually viewed climate advocates less negatively um, in, those, in that sense relative to before the marches. So we found that after the marches, people viewed climate advocates as less arrogant, less dictatorial, less aggressive, which based on the previous research um, we conducted suggests that there might be some potential benefits towards these marches in terms of changing people's relation to the climate movement and how likely they are to get engaged. He has hope that new research will demonstrate similar findings, that this new wave of young protesters will have an impact. But he also knows that not everyone thinks this way. It's really interesting sort of how how these protests are led, the fact that they were led, um, you know, largely by youth. And in many cases, um, you know, there were teenagers that were playing, you know, substantial roles. There's social psychological research that points to the way that we relate to different groups of people and different sorts of people in society. There's at least two sort of dimensions that we form impressions on and two dimensions that we might stereotype people on. And so on the one hand with children, it can be really hard and often ineffective to go and say, hey, these children are cruel, mean, evil people. Because typically we might see children as warm, we might see them as you know, people that care about us and that we care about. But on the other hand, if someone who's young or a child says something that we can dismiss them as, well, they mean well, but they're, they're incompetent, they're sort of naive. And so this is the sort of thing that you might expect if somebody wanted to discount what a child says. You might, you might assume that dismissing them as naive or incompetent would be a typical strategy that they would use. Tuba has experienced that dismissive culture online. I made the mistake of reading the comment thread on one of these um, climate strike videos and, you know, some of them, some of the comments were being said like, oh, you know, go, go clean a river, get off your damn phone, stuff like that. You see the politicians, you see ScoMo come out and just harass Greta and, and make comments about the way she looks. And I think that is the, you know, that spew that vitriol because that's, that's who our parliament is, you know, is filled with. And I think there is a clear, yeah, there's a clear pushback from a certain class of people against Greta and against what the school strikers stand for. Australian 
Prime Minister Scott Morrison made his views on climate change pretty clear when he declared the climate change debate is subjecting Australian children to needless anxiety. And recently, radical protest groups like Extinction Rebellion have attracted their own criticism, with Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton calling out the protesters as fringe dwellers and claiming they should face mandatory jail sentences and welfare cuts. Even Studio 10 presenter Kerry-Ann Kennelly encouraged drivers to use protesters as speed bumps as they took to the streets in their latest protests across the globe demanding climate action. Nate says these large protests aren't quite normalised yet. One change that we did not find um, is we wanted to look at whether having these really large protests, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the US participating in these, whether the, having these large protests sort of normalized the idea of climate advocacy, climate activism, whether it would make this be perceived as more of a normal thing that people in my community or people in the country do. And we actually didn't find evidence that um, people saw these things as more normal or more common after the protests which was a bit surprising to us in part because these were such large protests. We, you know, we thought people were going to see all these people doing this and this might make this seem like more of a normal thing to do. He says it's easy to view protesters as the other, especially people like Extinction Rebellion, who are known for their theatrics. We speculated that perhaps the reason why people didn't change their views on this was because they might have seen the protesters as, you know, sort of, oh, those are those environmentalists, those are those people over there, and they're, they're not people like me, they're not normal people. And that actually led us to wonder whether it might be possible for organizers of future marches to you know, really emphasize commonalities between the people engaging in, engaging in the marches and other people, you know, to show how these people were really just normal people, similar, in many ways similar to everybody else. Nate thinks those normal people could be the youth. I think it'll be really interesting to look at the data and see whether these children in the most recent round of these marches were having the same effect, you know, sort of on a broader level. I think that potentially these children could be really effective messengers at communicating about this issue for a variety of reasons. I mean, everybody's been children. Many people have children. And so potentially, you know, showing the fact that this is an issue that children and teenagers care about might be a way to show that this is really something that normal people, you know, can get engaged with. Tuba agrees the youth have potential to sway opinion. Even my own parents are like, that school kid's really inspiring. And like the adults that I'm surrounded by in my, in my activist organising obviously look, for, look to that struggle and are like, that's really inspiring. It's not this school kid being, you know, being boohoo and sad about the world for, for no reason. As for garnering more engagement, Nate says there's room for improvement. I think as researchers, we're still learning how to how to get people engaged, what sorts of strategies can be used to um, help people to feel like this is something that I can get engaged with. This is sort of a broad collective action issue that needs you know, broader public engagement. Nate says making the message personal is the best way. Political identities, political ideologies and identities are increasingly becoming more of an in-group, out-group sort of thing. There's becoming more of an us versus them thing. And so Research suggests that one of the most effective ways of communicating with people that have different political views is engaging people that you know with one-on-one conversations. 
and often a lot of really frustrating one-on-one -on -one conversations um, looking at okay I might be some someone who identifies as an environmentalist I might be someone who really cares about the environment um, the person I'm talking to might not might not see themselves as an environmentalist but they might have other values and so what is something that the two of us share that I can connect with them over that is related to climate change that does seem to be a more effective way of sort of breaking through the us versus them dynamics is having these conversations in per person rather than sort of mass conversations which is you know a better way to reach large groups of people but perhaps not as effective at reaching the people that might hold you know different views or consume different media than us in the first place tuba maintains hope for the movement you know you have this incredible like pessimism of the intellect but you have such optimism in people's actions that i think that is something that's that's hasn't really been there maybe recently for the climate movement and now all of a sudden is you have support from um you know different different unions it's connected to 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 the massive people's experiences now's not the time to despair at all it's the time to you know gather and and, and re-energize and, and push forward because yeah with that amount of strength we we really can Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SCR Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.